Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk about policing today, and in particular, the relationships between police and the communities they're supposed to keep safe. First, we're going to talk with the authors of a really interesting new book about George Floyd that looks closely at his life and puts it in the context of the movement that grew largely out of his murder. And then WDET's Eli Newman will join to discuss how Detroit's approach to policing has changed over the years. It's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. protesters advocating for justice after police officers had killed several unarmed African-Americans in cities across the country. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Those protesters that you heard first took to the streets in Minneapolis after a man named George Floyd was brutally and openly murdered there by a police officer. We've all seen the footage of that officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck until the breath was squeezed out of his lungs. Amazingly, though, the protests did not stop. After Floyd's death, they picked up and amassed millions in what became the biggest social movement our country has ever seen. People of all colors and backgrounds were walking the streets for months, demanding change and hoping for greater equality, for racial justice, and for an end to police wantonly killing innocent African Americans. But that's more than two years ago now. And I think it's fair to ask, what came of all this? Certainly, we are having different conversations now about inequality and racism than we were before that point. And there are some places where there's real experimentation taking place about how to change policing or whether to have policing in the form that we all know it at all. But I think there's still a question about what we should make of the life of George Floyd, the man who became a symbol of that movement. His face and name have literally become recognizable everywhere in the world. People all over the place, of course, know exactly who that is and why he's important. But have we changed very much in America about the dangers that African-Americans and many others face at the hands of the police. Later in the program, we're going to talk about what the consequences of those summer protests were here in Detroit. If you'll remember, Detroit was a central place for those kind of protests. We had lots and lots of people involved, and it went on for a long time. We're going to talk with WDET's Eli Newman about how Detroit's police department has changed and how it hasn't two years later. But before we get there, we do want to talk about what came of the life of George Floyd. What was his life trajectory? What were his challenges? And how were those things reflective of policies and practices that now have come into laser focus in America. Two writers at the Washington Post set out to understand all that. Robert Samuels and Talu Oloranipa dug into George Floyd's life and tried to understand the complete context in which he lived and grew up. Importantly, they tried to understand not just his life, but the history into which he was born, the lives that came before him, but of course had 
deep, deep influence over him. They wrote a book about what they found, and it's called His Name is George Floyd. And I'm really pleased to welcome them here to talk about what they uncovered. Robert Samuels and Talu Aloranipa, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having us. I really appreciate it. So, yeah, it's so great to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you both here. Uh, I, I want to start with the idea of why it's important to know more about George Floyd than we could glean from the video of uh, him being killed in Minneapolis, from the trial of the police officer who did it, from all of the things that came after his death. Why is it important? to know who George Floyd is and where he came from. Robert Samuels, I'll start with you. We started this project at a time when people didn't fully understand how the theory of systemic racism racism worked. We understood that people knew that when they saw Derek Chauvin kneel on George Floyd's neck, they saw something that was horrifying and on its face seemed unfair. But what we wanted readers to understand and what we decided that this book would be a worthwhile project for the world is that if you were concerned with the racism that revealed itself when Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, you should also consider the structures of racism that were consistently there in George Floyd's life before he had ever met Derek Chauvin. Because there are millions of people, untold numbers of people, Black people in this country who are still living in those conditions. And we wanted to be able to help show that if we understand who George Floyd is, we could help understand who we are as a society and continue working to dismantle some of those challenges that ultimately derailed his life. Mm. So, uh, Tolu, Laura Nipa, talk to us about who George Floyd was, where he grew up, what his family was like, what were the schools that he attended in the community he lived in? How did this set him up, I guess, for the life that uh, he had in America? And, of course, Uh, the death that he suffered at the hands of that Minneapolis police officer? That's such an important question. Uh, And what we tried to do in this book was show that George Floyd was an American. He he had a normal American experience in terms of wanting to have these dreams and believing that the American promise opened doors to all kinds of opportunities. He grew up in the South. He was born in North Carolina, and his family moved to Houston in the Third Ward uh, as he was a, a young boy. And he had, you know, the, a normal childhood in, in, in the sense that he wanted to, you know, be something. He had dreams. He, We talked to the second grade teacher, and we saw the essay that he wrote when he was in second grade about wanting to be a Supreme Court justice. And his teacher remembered him as a student who was bright and who was reading and doing math at grade level. Now, that obscures the fact that, you know, he was born into deep poverty. He had these dreams, he had these ambitions, he had the hope of escaping that poverty, but his his entire family history is marked by a a deep kind of poverty that comes from discrimination. And we delved back into his family several generations and saw that his great-great-grandfather had been born enslaved, but uh, worked really hard and actually had attained a a massive level of wealth in North Carolina, uh, only about 500 acres of land. Um, but he had all of that land stripped away from him uh, due to racism and discrimination in the late 1800s. And as a result, several generations after that, including the generation including George Floyd, uh, were marked by deep poverty, hard work, uh, without being able to reap the labor of that hard work, sharecropping and and other kinds of domestic work and other kinds of work that uh, did not allow them to to establish themselves in any kind of uh, generational wealth. So George Floyd was born into that he was born, and in the words of his mother, with two strikes against him already, as being black and poor. But despite that, he was someone who was always optimistic. He had dreams. He was someone who uh, would go into a room and tell people, I love you, because he did not want people to see uh, his size and be intimidated by them. Um, 
And unfortunately, he saw a lot of those dreams deferred. And we, we go into the book how you know he wanted to be a Supreme Court justice, and he wanted to be an athlete, and he wanted to be a rapper. And all of those dreams were uh, essentially deferred as he ran into a number of hurdles that were placed in his uh, in his past, from you know discrimination in housing to discrimination and segregation in the schooling system to the criminal justice system, which was also stacked against him. And it was important for us to show how he tried to navigate these various systems, including the mistakes that he made, including the times where the system was unfair to him, and how his experience was, a, was an American experience, but it's an experience of a different kind of America that many than what many people know, and it was one that was marked by systemic racism uh, all, on a number of different fronts. Mm-hmm. So, so, Robert Samuels, one of the things that I think is really uh, just hits you across the face about the stories in this book, the information in this book, is the contrast uh, that it strikes with some of the narrative about George Floyd that we heard uh, after he was killed. And and this is, this is pretty common, of course, um, when somebody has a run-in with a police officer and, uh, and loses their life. The, the story becomes about why that person essentially may have deserved what they got. And maybe that's an oversimplification of, of the way that those stories are told. But, but certainly there is this culpability that gets assigned to victims like George Floyd because they're black, because they're poor, uh, that, that, that says that they are less than in a way that justifies what happened to them. I, I, I want to. I want you to just for a minute focus on how how stark again that contrast is from the truth of George Floyd's life and how that story is so common in America for other African Americans. Absolutely, and it really goes to peel back to the idea of how we try to fulfill stereotypes and affirm our biases in this country. <clears throat> you know, Stephen, when we started reporting this book and we started talking about it, people would say to us, why learn about George Floyd? He was no saint. He was a drug addict. He had these issues. He had an arrest record. And it is true that, yes, George Floyd had a drug dependency issue, but the question is not, really, whether he did or he didn't, the question is why? And the question for readers and people who are intaking this information is what you draw from it, right? Now, when we did our reporting and we looked at the fact that he spent more than a third of his life behind bars, we also looked at the type of things he was arrested for. Sometimes he'd be detained for doing something as simply like walking down the street with nothing to do, looking like he was going nowhere. That was the police explanation for it. We spoke to people who were victims. You know, one of the cases that's most known is that he had pleaded guilty to an armed robbery charge uh, on the internet. They talked about it as him holding up a pregnant woman with a, putting a gun to her stomach, right? But when we spoke to the woman, that reporting was done by one of our colleagues at the Post, Arelise Hernandez, who spoke to her in Spanish, which there's no documentation that the police did. Spanish was her first language when she wasn't pregnant. Two, she said the person who held the gun to her stomach was 5'6". George Floyd was 6'6". And when she identified him in a lineup, a list of photos, uh, she circled him and they asked, uh, are you sure? Are you positive? Are you completely unsure? Are you tentative? She chose tentative, which is way below the reasonable standard, doubt standard in the United States. So why did George Floyd plead guilty to that, right? You have to look at the context of his neighborhood. The belief that if you get caught with a charge no matter your innocence, there was no public defender system to help you. George Floyd never went to trial for anything that he was 
uh, charged with or convicted of doing because there was no public defender system in Texas. There was also, he was also a big man and he understood the stereotypes that come with having his size and being black and poor in America. And often the best choice in his community was believed to accept a plea deal because the consequences, no one would believe you anyway. And the consequences, if you didn't accept the plea deal would be dire. So take the time and go back to your family. That's the kind of world he was living in. But what we really want your listeners to understand here is this is not a distinct world. It is something that is endemic in the United States today, even still. And that we raise these stereotypes and we talk about people in these ways who are Black, often in a way that discounts them. But when we think about people who go through the same sort of struggles and how that's translated when they're white in America, you know, think about all the American legends that are based on the tragedies and the persistence of people in this country who got knocked down and tried to pick themselves up. What our reporting showed through more than 400 interviews with people who had known George Floyd best was every time George Floyd was knocked down, he followed in that same American legend of trying to pick himself back up. He was fundamentally an American man. Hmm. I'm talking with Robert Samuels and Tolu Nipa. They are reporters for the Washington Post who've published a book called His name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice. Uh, We're talking about George Floyd, the man, and the life that he led before he was killed by a Minnesota police officer in 2020, uh, an event that really did inspire much of the current movement that we are witnessing and in some cases uh, participating in uh, that calls on America to rethink not just policing, but also uh, the racial context in which policing is executed in our in our country. Uh, We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of George Floyd's life? How did his murder and the subsequent protests uh, change your understanding of our country? How do you see things like race and the criminal justice system now? Is it different because of what happened to George Floyd or what's happened in the subsequent incidences where we see uh, innocent African-Americans killed by police? Uh, How much do you think history and the communities we grow up in determine our lives, our relationships with institutions like the police department. Uh, As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Also, give us a call and let us know what you think of policing in our own communities here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, A little later, in the program. We're going to talk with WDET's Eli Newman. He's a reporter and a producer here uh, about how Detroit's police department has changed and how it hasn't since George Floyd was murdered. Uh, We would love to hear from people about uh, the interactions you have with police, not just in Detroit, but uh, in the many suburbs around us. Uh, What do those look like? How do they feel uh, if you are African-American, if you are Uh, somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, do you feel as though uh, the police are there for you or are the police there uh, as a force kind of against you? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Before we get to listeners, uh, Tulu, I want to talk about something Uh, that comes up in the book. It's called The Minnesota Paradox, the idea that uh, Minnesota is and was sometimes a racially progressive state and other times not so much. Uh, I I think that's another powerful theme that doesn't just apply to Minnesota, but applies to lots of parts of American life. Uh, Talk about The Minnesota Paradox. 
Yeah, George Floyd moved from Houston, his hometown, to Minneapolis in 2017, and being part of this uh, progression of people from his hometown in Houston who saw Minnesota as a state of opportunity. They moved up north as their ancestors had, as as, uh, other uh, black Americans had earlier in American history as part of this great migration because the Midwest and the North provided uh, new opportunities, more uh, equality, and that in some ways, uh, is uh, the draw that led George Floyd to move to Minnesota. Uh, but as he got there, he realized, uh, as many other Americans do, that it's not uh, it's not a paradise. It's not a place that uh, does not have its own you know, fraught racial history and fraught racial uh, disparities. And we see that in, in Minnesota, even though it has a number of progressive policies, even though on the surface level they uh, you know, support uh, a number of uh, things that provide for equality across the races, and there's not that blatant racism that you often see in the South, there are still very stark disparities when it comes to different communities. There's still high levels of segregation when it comes to residential policy, and there are still policies that are put forward, even though they're not racist on their face, that have, you know, racially disparate impacts, and that is seen in housing, it's seen in education, it's seen in the wealth disparity that we see. And for George Floyd, it came across as, you know, he was able to, you know, stand on his feet in Minnesota, but unfortunately, that only lasted for, for, for a certain amount of time. He wasn't able to outrun the systemic racism that he had experienced earlier in his life by changing his location. He still experienced those same levels, uh, those same types of discrimination, and that same type of um, disparity when he got to Minneapolis. So that's part of the paradox that uh, people who uh, you know travel there or people who live there experience both the positive sides of being in a progressive state, but also the, the veneer that sometimes that progressive progressivism cannot shield uh, them from, you know, the, the, the racism that is a part of our country and that is a part of our history as well. Mm. And and even so, uh, the, the consequence for Derek Chauvin, which was, I mean, it, itself an outlier in the, the narrative about police killings of, uh, of, of African-Americans in this country, um, uh, is only possible because of a certain progressivism. Uh, Keith Ellison, who's uh, a native Detroiter, who's also the attorney general of Minnesota, decides that there will be real consequences for Derek Chauvin. He prosecutes him for murder and, and gets a conviction. Um, uh, that is also, I think, uh, sort of, I mean, it's it's not just a notable part of the story. Uh, I think it's a critical part of uh, this idea of uh, how all this kind of fits in the context of of um, uh, of this problem in America. That that here, because it's in Minnesota, um, we get a we get some semblance of of justice out of it. Uh, Tulu, can you talk just a little about about that consequence and how that fits into the story? Totally. And uh, what we saw from, from Minneapolis in terms of kicking off the protest that ended up going nationwide and internationally, we saw a diverse group of people coming out to protest for George Floyd, to protest for his humanity. And that is part of that progressivism, part of the fact that you have people who live in, in Minnesota and who live in the Midwest who are willing to you know, embrace this idea of equality, embrace the idea that the police should not be snuffing out a life like they did in the case of George Floyd. And we saw that move forward with the prosecution, uh, you know, their children being prosecuted and charged with second-degree murder. Um, often in these police cases, you know, the charges are never filed, or if they're filed, they're filed as a, at, a, at a very low level. But, you know, Keith Ellison and his team, as we report in the book, decided that they were going to go strongly at this case, and they're going to try to make the strong case that Derek Chauvin wantonly took George Floyd's life without regard for his humanity. And they made that case before a jury of uh, Derek Chauvin's peers right there in Minneapolis, and he was convicted and sentenced. And even today, there's going to be another sentencing of another one of the officers who pled guilty uh, Mm -hmm. for being a part of that process. And that's a sign that, you know, Minneapolis was key to uh, what we've seen over the past couple of years in which, you know, prosecuting police officers is no longer uh, this, you know, far-fetched idea in which it's hardly it hardly ever happens. Their children is actually just one of a handful of 
police officers who have ever been convicted of murdering someone in, in the city of Minneapolis. But it is a change. It is something that has happened in part because of George Floyd's murder yeah. and in part because of the city in which it happened and the region in which it happened, in which, uh, you know, these kinds of things cannot be swept under the rug anymore. Yeah. If I could jump in here, because I think sure. this is really important. Go ahead. Uh, Keith Ellison, who's the state attorney general, wasn't originally assigned to prosecute the case. Right, right. right. The, the the governor. He had to of, take it. Yeah. The governor of Minneapolis of Minnesota asked him to do it because he thought he might have a better shot because of his experience and because of his knowledge of what can happen in the legal system as a black man, and what they what that legal team did was they had to unthink some of the ways they typically try to prosecute police officers. The only officer in Minnesota that had ever been charged with uh, killing someone on the job was a black man who killed a white woman. So they didn't have a lot of statistics. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that one of the things that they needed to reconsider was who is the medical examiner? Is the medical examiner in cahoots with the police department? How much do we need to go outside of the traditional systems and barriers to make sure that justice could be had for uh, George Floyd and Derek Chauvin could be held accountable? There were extraneous measures that needed to be taken, including uh, downplaying the testimony of the <laughs> their own witness, the medical examiner for the county, if they needed to do it because the biases that were that persist within the legal system were still present in Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we need to take a quick break, uh, but when we come back, we're going to continue this really interesting conversation about uh, his name is George Floyd, one man's life and the struggle for racial justice. Also, just talking about policing and racism in America. <clears throat> Let's get going on the phones when we get back as well. 313 577 1019 is the number call, and tell us what you make of George Floyd and his murder two years after it happened, two years after massive protests launched a worldwide movement uh, to reconsider policing, to reconsider racism and its history in America. Again, you can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking right now to Tolu Aloranipa and Robert Samuels, two reporters from The Washington Post, who published a book called His Name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice. We're talking about policing and the way that George Floyd's murder change the way that a lot of us see policing, change the way that a lot of us are talking about uh, racism and the history of inequality in America. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call on the phones. Uh, talk about what is different in your mind about the way you think about policing uh, because of the death of George Floyd. What's changed in the last two years? What would you hope would change uh, that maybe hasn't yet happened? Uh, over the last two years. Uh, also give us a call and let us know about your experiences with uh, police here in Southeast Michigan, the Detroit Police Department, which we're going to talk about in a little bit with WDET's Eli Newman, but also uh, lots of suburban uh, police departments that uh, people interact with. Uh, are you seeing things uh, differently when you interact with those police? Are you seeing them behave differently when they interact with you. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, uh, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, guys, before we get to uh, listeners, I also want to talk about how you followed Derek Chauvin's life in the book, The Police Officer Who Killed George Floyd. 
Talk about the institutions and communities that produce him and how they are, uh, I guess, somewhat similar, somewhat different from the circumstances that uh, that produce George Floyd. Uh, Robert Samuels, I'll start with you here. Sure. Well, Derek Chauvin's family immigrated to the United States on their own accord. And even though they did not grow up with they did not come here with much. They were able to, over generations, uh, build a middle-class lifestyle, including uh, a history in Detroit, <coughs> where uh, one of Derek Chauvin's forebears had a bookbinding business, bookbinding business on the river. What we learned about Derek Chauvin um, was that he was a largely unremarkable student. Uh, we spoke with. We tried to speak with more than 100 people who had interacted with him in his life. And uh, he loved watching Starsky and Hutch and became uh, eventually joined the army, which he found a purpose and he wanted to become a police officer. Now, what we don't talk a lot about what was going on in Derek Chauvin's head, but because we don't know. But what we do know is that he joined a police precinct in a diverse community that was known as the thumpers. They were known for using aggressive force. And Derek Chauvin followed in that model. He was known particularly for using neck restraints. That's choking mm-hmm. uh, in layman's terms, in the most simplest of terms. Over the course of his 19-year career in the police department, we found that he starts using uh, the neck restraint 18 days after he's trained on it. And in, uh, he often tells people he used it because the person was bigger than him. Derek Chauvin um, was only 5'9". And so What we see throughout his career are people complaining about his aggression, his use of force, complaining to the police department. But because the systems are so labyrinthine, he's never reprimanded for it in a documented way. So sometimes there's this rumor that Derek Chauvin and George Floyd had known each other because they had worked in the same club. It's true that at some point they might have been working at the same club. No one ever knows if they did it at the same time, but there's no reason to believe that Derek Chauvin did this because it was something personal. Hmm. What the reporting showed was Derek Chauvin used this technique often with increasing aggression as time went on and continued to use it despite complaints that were coming from the public. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's start today with Brian in Detroit. Brian, what's on your mind? Uh, I was just listening to the, the podcast. I was, it was just profound because I'm 51 and I was raised the morning in Detroit and my parents were biracial. My dad was black. My mom was white. They talked about the racism of cops, which back then was probably predominantly white. And then, you, you know, I, I myself have experienced it just over minor civil infractions that you just get, you get dogged, you get mm. hounded. Then you get one ticket, they are always on you no matter what, even before those tickets expire within three years. It's just, it's a bad situation. It, it, it calls for reform and we're not willing to do it. So, so Brian, before I get back to our guests, when you say reform, what in your mind would that look like? What, what should change about policing? One is we know, we've known for the last 30 years, I would say, that the police and the military, and which are an interchangeable organization, they need to be reformed for one, two, one thing. The first thing is primarily get the white idea, ideologues of white supremacy out of those organizations. That, is, that has been documented more than enough. Then after that, there needs to be comprehensive training for cops that they understand their civil enforcement of a civil society. They're not military. I, I Those are my two important things. Mm, yeah. Uh, Brian, I really appreciate uh, the call and those those ideas. Uh, Tulu, Alora, Nipa, talk about how, you know, this, this idea that Brian has that, you know, that one interaction with, a police officer 
can snowball, right? He says, you know, they get you with one ticket and and then they're all over you. Um, that, certainly that was uh, made evident in, in George Floyd's life, but that is part of the American experience and especially the African-American experience with police. Yeah, and I'm so glad that Brian brought up those points because in the book we get into the fact that uh, George Floyd experienced policing in a different way than most Americans. He lived in a community where police were always there and they were always looking to make low-level infractions, civil infractions, uh, stop people for uh, seemingly no reason. He was stopped more than 20 times, and we, we documented at least about six of the officers who stopped him were later charged with uh, abusing power. And in some of the cases that he was arrested, he was arrested for things as simple as walking through his own neighborhood because the police said in their report that he didn't look like he was going anywhere in particular. And they uh, stopped him and they arre- arrested him. And he knew that, you know, as a result of his, his skin color, as a result of where he lived, as a result of the fact that the war on drugs and the mass incarceration was happening, that he was going to be targeted for some of these you know, petty arrests, often for uh, not doing anything, you know, particularly damaging, but just for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, because police didn't want people hanging out on the corner, they'd run up and they would arrest whole groups of people. And that has an impact on your life. It's not just an inconvenience. George Floyd was unable to get a a job for a large portion of his life because he did have a record. And in a state like Texas, if you have a record, you can't even apply for a number of uh, professional licenses, like being a barber or being a, a locksmith. You can get those kinds of licenses, and he couldn't work. Uh, and, and that leads to you know a lot of people going back into uh, the thing that got them uh, in, in, in the crosshairs of the criminal justice system in the first place. So uh, it's really important what, what Brian mentioned about how you know what may seem like just an inconvenience, you know, getting in, getting targeted or getting ticketed by the police can really have these longstanding impacts and longstanding effects on people. And we see that in George Floyd's life over the course of two decades in which he was cycling in and out of the criminal justice system. And it's part of the reason he moved to the Midwest, because he felt that in Texas, which was an incredibly punitive state, he would never get a, a fair shot and he would, he would always be in the crosshairs of police. And he left, uh, and then tragically, he lost his life in, in Minneapolis under the knee of a police officer. But it was something that was a critical part of his life, even on the days where there were no people filming what was happening in his interactions with the cops. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Tulu Alora and Robert Samuels, uh, congratulations on the book. It really is a, a riveting read, but uh, especially thanks to both of you for being here to talk about it on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how Detroit's police department has changed since the mass protests during the summer of 2020. Eli Newman, reporter and producer right here at WDET, is going to join us to discuss. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Two years, people across Metro Detroit were hitting the pavement to advocate for racial justice and a fair criminal justice system. In the wake of George Floyd's death, we saw thousands and thousands of people in the streets over weeks and weeks right here in Detroit. But after all the demands and protests and advocacy, What's different about our police departments? What specifically has changed about the way that Detroit's police department serves its citizens? What has changed in an American city that has one of the highest percentages of African-American residents and has a police department that is under the command of an African-American? To talk about all of this is a reporter who has been covering the Detroit police for some time. Eli Newman is a reporter and producer here at WDET, covers breaking news, politics, and community affairs. Eli, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Stephen. So let's get right to that question. How has the Detroit Police Department changed since the summer of 2020? 
Well, that's certainly a loaded question, but I think that maybe the short answer is that uh, not much has really changed. I think if you were to look at the budget um, that the police received this year, obviously the, one of the primary calls during the, the protest was to, quote, defund the police. Detroit's police budget actually increased. Um, the budget is currently around $368 million. That's a $27 million increase from the year prior. Um, there have been, uh, while there have been these um, certain changes in, in policy or, or highlighting um, the certain um, use of force policies that Detroit has, you know, things about chokeholds, things of that nature, we did see short, after that whole protest a period that there was a, a pretty significant lawsuit that was um, put onto the city by the primary protesting group, the Detroit Will Breathe. They sued the city for uh, free speech kind of violations, also this excessive force. And in response to that, the city did um, uh, countersue them. Eventually, that lawsuit was was uh, thrown out, and there is still this ongoing litigation that's going on there. But that, you know, I think in a nutshell, kind of shows that this trajectory that the police department was on, I think before the pandemic and before uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of these high-profile um, uh, police-involved killings, uh, I don't think it's really shifted from that tra trajectory. Mm. So we also should put this in some historical context. I grew up here in the city of Detroit and and remember the days of the Big Four. Uh, I remember the times uh, uh, when the department had to be under federal supervision because of the kinds of interrogations that were that were taking place. I mean, we have a pretty awful history, in fact, in Detroit when it comes to policing and particularly uh, policing of, of African-American uh, communities. Um, talk about how different things are now than then, or if they are sufficiently different from those days. There are a lot of people who say, that there are things that seem familiar to, yeah, uh, to those times. You know, I, I would say that that history that you're referring to isn't really that far long ago. I mean, right. the federal oversight in Detroit ended only in tw around 2014. Yeah, 20, um, I think that's right, uh, 2012 or 13. Or 2012, or 13. It, yeah. it was kind of like the start of that trajectory, mm -hmm. you know, pretty much under the uh, police chief, James Craig's kind of administration is, w is when um, that federal oversight w was being lifted. Now, of course, that... Uh, during his tenure, there, there's plenty of um, uh, federal investigations of of how police conducted themselves. I mean, we there were significant bribery cases, um, things uh, uh, theft cases. Uh, two officers um, in the narcotics section were um, uh, charged with um, stealing basically almost a million dollars, and uh, uh, so, so that 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 came out of a a, a cocaine. Uh, uh, Sale. So mm -hmm. there, there was, there has been this issue of, of, of I think corruption that has still kind of manifest. I mean, just you know, a few uh, a month or so ago, you know, WDET uh, was able to report on this this 200-page report that federal investigators, in, in conjunction with a, a Detroit Police Internal Affairs, prepared that that really um, analyzed the major violators in the narcotics section. That the history that has transpired over. Um, you know, 2010 to 2018 when this investigation started. And it found really rampant um, uh, corruption, whether it be um, uh, issues with, um, I mean, there's all sorts of uh, proof that they were able to show about um, overtime fraud and all this kind of uh, little kind of things like that. But there was also pretty significant claims that by, by all these different people that they were being interviewed, um, uh, suspected drug dealers, that the, that the police would often steal from them or employ them to, you know, sell drugs. So there it has been a lot of that stuff hasn't really, you know, um, subsided. And I should mm -hmm. say that there is a coalition that is currently asking the federal government to uh, renew its federal oversight uh, because of this, um, because of excessive force. I mean, there's uh, stats from from last year that there's more than a thousand cases of, of use of force, which isn't really that much different than things were in 2020. So there have been these kind of significant cases. There have been police involved shootings in Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, maybe they don't necessarily uh, rise to the, the same kind of prominence as some of these other high profiles one, but 
there's a, currently there's a, a lawsuit um, uh, from the family of Michael Adams III. This was a 19-year-old who was um, uh, shot um, and killed by police um, during a uh, like a drifting race that was happening near like the Russell Industrial Center. And um, his lawyers claimed that he was unarmed, that he was shot in the back. That litigation is still ongoing. So, and there's plenty of other, I think, uh, instances where there have been these kind of significant um, occasions that you know they're still we're still kind of seeing how the facts of the of those cases and as time goes on yeah. and a lot of things haven't been settled. Yeah, I'm talking with Eli Newman, a reporter and producer here at uh, WDET. We're talking about the Detroit Police Department and how it has changed or not changed since the summer of 2020 when we saw massive protests in our city uh, about uh, police and their relationship with the community, their relationship with the community overall, and especially their relationship with uh, African-Americans. Uh, Want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of the changes to police departments in Detroit and in neighboring cities since the summer of 2020? What's changed? What hasn't? Have you seen improvements and efforts on the behalf of police to create a fair criminal justice system or just to deal with people in a fair way. Uh, also, what would you like to still see happen? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we can include you in the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Eli, I want to talk about defund the police, which was uh, a central theme of the protests in, in the summer of 2020. Now, Mayor Mike Duggan was was clear in saying that he didn't he didn't agree with that idea. He understood, um, you know, the, the feelings behind it and thought that there were things that could be done to, you know, change the nature of policing, but that this idea of defunding the police was not something he was going to get behind. But how powerful is that idea still in Detroit? And uh, are there things that are either likely to happen or maybe already happening that are part of this idea of kind of repurposing uh, money that goes to policing as money that could go to to kind of help people in the in the community before the police intervene or to find other ways uh, to respond to our problems? So like I said, the, the police department's budget has only increased um, since since 2020. Um, that being said, there definitely are certain initiatives um, that the police department is partnering up with um, local groups in terms of, of uh, kind of more so with this kind of mental health kind of focus and in response to some of these emergency situations. I think there's definitely that's a consistent um, call that the police, the current police chief James White ha has made in terms of you know we need to address some of these mental health issues. I mean he's he's been making some strong um, uh, uh, op making some oppositional remarks about um, firearms or, or the, the the kind of semi-automatic um, uh, weaponry that uh, was recently used um, in this uh, the the shooting and killing of Officer Lauren Courts, mm. um, whose funeral was um, earlier this week. Mm -hmm. um, the, so there have been like these different, you know, I think approaches. Uh, again, Chief White has this kind of five-point plan where he's really increased patrols. I, I, I think it's hard to say that there ha has been really that much out of the box thinking in terms of, of new approaches to policing. Um, again, there are these kind of initiatives where they are trying to, you know, work on, on this mental health aspect of it. But but again, I think we're seeing a, a reliance on a lot of technology use, obviously, you know, Project Greenlight, which many people here are, are familiar with. This, that's the surveillance program. You might see them at gas stations or kind of various locations, and that feeds footage to uh, uh, directly to the police department. Mm -hmm. There's a there's shot spotter, which is, you know, gunshot detection software. There's uh, recently the, the city has this contract with Evolve, which is a weapons detection, uh, essentially a checkpoint or a mm -hmm. gateway that you mm -hmm. would go through if there's like a, a, a mass public event where, you know, they were being used during the, the fireworks, for instance. And so that was a situation in which they, the police was monitoring for potential illegal gun possession, or actually really all gun possession was, was prohibited from that specific event. So I think there are uh, new approaches, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say any of them um, fit the description of that defund the police that yeah. I think a lot of the activists were calling for. Yeah.
Let's quickly go to the phones here. Gloria in Detroit. Gloria, I've only got about a minute left, but uh, go ahead. Oh, I'm, excuse me. I just want to make a comment about um, uh, the police department. And uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm under the 5th Precinct on mm-hmm. Detroit's east side. Mm-hmm. And we meet once a month. And it's very important to, uh, to you get to meet the officers, the commander. And we have bingo. And we meet uh, on Zoom once a month. And allow, I think that's important when you attend the meetings mm. and you get to know the police officer. Yeah. Uh, Gloria, you're absolutely right. That kind of community connection with police is, is really important. Uh, uh, Eli, I, I know that there are lots of instances of that kind of thing that do go on in the city. It's not as though the police are not engaged in it, but it, but it's not everything, right? It's not. Uh, oh, it's a- not I mean, whole. absolutely. I mean, I think the police do a, a lot, have a lot of different outreach efforts. I mean, uh, the other day I, I, I happened upon one that, that was going on at Palmer Park during um, for, for Pride Month. And so there, there are these opportunities, I think, for that community engagement. And I think that is something that uh, residents like Gloria really desire and, and want to see in their police. I, the other day I was seeing police doing, you know, foot patrols in, uh, in a section of Livernois where I hadn't really seen them kind of doing that before. So seeing officers, you know, out and out and about walking, I think that's, uh, there are these steps that I think, you know, that kind of police visibility, that kind of, you know, commu- uh, community building, which is, I think, also um, a desire that the police department really wants to have. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- those, are, those are tools that are all at the disposal to kind of fight, which is really, you know, these significant issues of crime that happened in Detroit. Yeah. Okay. Eli Newman, reporter and producer here at WDET. Great to have you here in the studio. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. All right, that's going to do it for us. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk about the meaning and significance of friendship and how its dynamics have changed over the last decade with writer Julie Beck. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. Tomorrow.